and welcome, hey, thanks. Welcome to Sunday School. We are continuing our series on how to read and study the Bible. Today our goal, our goal is to uh, proceed further in the process of interpretation. I would have liked to wrap up today, but I don't think we'll have enough time. We'll proceed further with the process of interpretation using a passage from the scriptures. We started this last week, but we'll continue using Revelation 3, 14 to 22 and look at the process of interpretation in action. Now, as I like to do, I want to start with a little bit of review, and this isn't to bore you to tears, because you might be saying, ah, he does the same thing every week. We keep going over the process. But that's partially because I really want to make sure that it's in your heads, and secondly, because there, there might be some new people who are coming into the Sunday school, and I don't want them to be uh, shell-shocked when they see we're in the middle of this process of interpretation. So let's review a little bit. We do have our method for studying Bible passages. It always uh, encompasses or is made up of three steps. What are those steps? Observe, interpret, and apply. Very good. And then within the interpret step, we have the five steps in the process of interpretation. And I'll actually display those for you. I won't quiz you on those, but I will quiz you on what they actually mean. When it comes to interpretation, which is the, the step that we're focusing on now, there are five C's, or five steps, in the process of interpretation, and we start with content. What is the content step of interpretation? What do you do with the text? You read the text and? As we're reading, what are we doing? Taking it in, we're making something. What are we making? Observations. Very good. Thanks, Steve. On, on the content step, we're not just reading it, but reading it at, with the point of making observations, trying to see what does it actually say, what do I notice, and what are some things that we can observe in a biblical text? Yeah, Eric. Exactly. There are so many things that we can observe, and Eric actually brought up a few categories. People, especially when they're talking, um, places, time. What else? I know this is reaching back many weeks ago when we talked about observation, but what are some other things that we can observe? You say, hey, there's that in the text. Okay, good. There's some, some more things that Steve mentioned. Grammar, we want to notice what's the main verb? What tense is it in? Or what's the subject? Is there a direct object? Is there repetition? What's the organization? Lots of things that we can observe. And the, in the interpretation process, content, make sure that we haven't missed that. We must start with the text that we're studying, just observing it. What is the context step? Eric. Exactly. Okay, very good, Eric. We are going to separate some of that, that background information into a separate step, things more about the history that 
that we might not get from just studying the immediate passage. But Eric is right. When we're talking about the context step, we're looking around the passage. We're looking at what comes before, what comes after, and what's in the rest of the book. And again, we are observing things, things that will give us more understanding about the passage that we're looking at. Now, to do these first two steps, what resources do you need to do them? Danielle. That's right. Content, context, you're, you don't really need anything else. If you have some notes about the original language, yes, you can apply that in the content step, but you're just using the scriptures and your brain and, of course, the spirit because you, you need the spirit to understand the things that are spiritual. When we go into the comparison step, we do start to use another resource or some other resources. What are we looking to do in the comparison step? We've looked at the content, the actual passage, and observed it. We've looked at the context. We've looked around the passage and observed what is there. But what, are the, what about the comparison step? Yes, Steve. I think there's parallel passages or other places where they use the same words. Or, um, you know, I mean, you have the four Gospels. A lot of times the stories, uh, different points of view, are the same particular incident. Right. Yes, so what Steve is, is getting at here is that we're looking at the rest of the Bible for other relevant passages, other even parallel passages to whatever it is that we're studying. If our passage is talking about, um, if our passage is talking about the kingdom, well, then we look at other passages that talk about the kingdom. Or if our passage is talking about um, denying oneself, then we look at other passages that talk about denying oneself. Now, how do we actually find these other passages? They are in the Bible. Yes, Eric. Right. Right. And there are different types of concordances. Sometimes your study Bible might have a small, limited concordance in the back. You can use that. But also there are the exhaustive concordances, which contain every usage of a certain word. But you don't just have to use concordances. What else can you use to find other relevant passages? What do you mean, Steve? Do you mean like the notes at the bottom of the page? Okay, I would, just for the sake of following the outline of these steps, be careful about using the bottom notes because that's going to actually give you his interpretation, his opinion of the passage. But where they have other verse references, sometimes in the bottom, but certainly in the middle of that study Bible, these cross-references, they again will point you to relevant passages. If you say, well, my Bible doesn't have cross-references and a concordance, uh, that's too far away, I, I'm too lazy to go get a concordance, you can actually easily um, find relevant scriptures if you have a computer. Because, of course, you can go to a certain website, I don't know if you used it before, BibleGateway.com, and it's really simple. All you do is type in a word or a phrase, and you look for where else that phrase appears. I've actually done that as part of my preparation for this study, and that's how I found some of the relevant passages that we'll be talking about today. So lots of ways that you can find other relevant scriptures. Sometimes you don't even have to search. Sometimes you say, hey, doesn't this sound like something from Mark? I remember there was a passage there that said something similar. You can just use your brain to go back and find it. But you want to, I forget the Latin for the phrase, but interpret scripture with scripture. That sheds a lot of light on the passage, 
the particular passage that you're studying, and we'll see that today. The culture step, this actually goes back to something a little bit that Eric mentioned before. What are we doing in the culture step? Amy. But how do we recapture that? How, you're absolutely right, Amy. We want to recreate the mindset of the audience, but how do we do that? Well, we do want to get in the audience's point of view. And our study in the passage, the context of the passage, and the rest of the Bible will help us do that. But there are some things about the culture that we just won't see in the Bible, even though the audience would clearly have had that in mind. We definitely, again, want to start using some other resources. Concordance is more in the comparison step. But yeah, we're talking about Bible dictionary, Bible handbooks, um, atlases. And again, you can even use the internet if you have a trusted source. And this isn't, this isn't hard. I don't want you to get the impression, especially last week whenever I put a whole bunch of books up here, and you just say, oh my goodness, is that what I have to do for Bible study? Oh, it's going to take forever. No, no, it's actually really simple, and you don't have to use, you don't have to go far to find a lot of these resources. If you find a term like water, you want to find more about water, or a passage that talks about water, then you can go to your Bible handbook, look under where it says food and drink in the table of contents, and there's probably going to be something about water there. Or you go into the index, and you look for water, and you see what pages talk about water. If you're looking in a Bible dictionary, it's just like a regular dictionary. It's alphabetical. So you just look for whatever term, term is relevant to you. You just search until it appears in the Bible dictionary and read the entry. You may say, but I don't have one. I don't have a handbook. I don't have any of that stuff. Well, guess what? Thanks to the technology of our, our new age, there are actually Bible dictionaries and probably handbooks online. And one of the ones that we're actually going to use today comes from a website called studylight.org where they have the free... Bible dictionary that's actually recommended by the author of the book that we've been going through. This whole series is based off of the book from the Hendrixes, uh, How to uh, Living by the Book. And in the back, they give a, a list of recommended resources. And one of them is the, I actually forget the name now, I think it's the Holman's Bible Dictionary. And that's online. You can use that whole thing for free. You don't even have to sign up. You just go to the website. <clears throat> so that is available. And we want to take advantage of that to reconnect ourselves with the culture of that time. As MacArthur said in a video not too, long, um, not too many weeks ago, we want to place ourselves back in that time period so we can, understood it, we can understand the passage the way that they would have understood it. Once we've done that, once we've done these first four steps, we should have gathered enough to make an interpretation. We want to come up with an interpretation. What the, what the original author was trying to say or what the original author was saying to his audience, and then we can proceed to the cons consultation step. I feel like I called it something differently last week, but consultation. What are we looking to do in the consultation step? Yeah, Steve. Let's see if other people agree with your interpretation. And how can we do that, Steve? Very good, yes. So just as Steve said, we want to 
We want to consult other interpreters and see what they came up with so that we can check ourselves. And yes, we want to go to trusted teachers. Um, some, the commentaries of somebody that, that we follow and we know is faithful with handling the scriptures, like MacArthur, um, in many instances Piper, or some, some of the older preachers like Spurgeon or Calvin or something like that. If we encounter something different in their interpretation with ours, what do we, what do, we do? Do we just say, oh, my interpretation is, is wrong? Or do we say, oh, his interpretation is wrong? If we encounter a difference in interpretation, what do we do? What, what's that, Khalif? Okay, we can compare it to other ones. We say, all right, this person disagrees. Let me see what other people said. And what if we find that among a lot of our trusted teachers or some of our trusted teachers, we disagree? Okay, we should probably pray about it. We do want the Spirit's help. Are all opinions created equally? Certainly not. Right, there's got to be only one correct interpretation, and we, what we've got to do is examine the evidence. Just because there's a teacher that you really like who says something, and it's different than what you said, you shouldn't just say, oh, okay, well, I guess I just better default to him. Well, what evidence did he come up with? Based on your own study, you may say, no, that interpretation is not valid um, based on what actually appears in the text. Or, if he presents some evidence that you didn't consider, you say, oh, wow, I really overlooked something here. I had no idea that the word for love was this word. Oh, I don't know what's going on with that. Okay. <clears throat> I had no idea that the word for love was this certain word, and that really changes the way that you interpret this. I didn't see that. So you adjust your interpretation, not simply based on whether somebody else says something differently than you, but on what evidence he gave. And it's helpful to do this step last, um, because why? Eric. Exactly. You have a much harder time weighing the evidence if you start with another person's interpretation. You, have an, you don't have anything to, to consider as an alternative, and you don't have any reasons to do so. So it is very important that we do consultation in the last step. Now, again, you might be saying, oh, I don't have a commentary. Well, Bible study notes, in a lot of ways, uh, if you have a study Bible, they are like a commentary. They often will give interpretations of a section of a passage or of a passage. So you can consult those. Or uh, a sermon... Actually, a lot of MacArthur's commentaries are, are based on his sermons, if I understand correctly. So if you go and look at a sermon that somebody preached on that passage, like Piper or MacArthur, you essentially will be getting their interpretation. You'll be getting uh, a commentary of sorts. So again, even if you haven't bought a commentary or nobody gave you one, you have access to things that, are, that will suffice for this consultation step. Okay, good. That is the process of interpretation, and we are walking through this process using our passage from Revelation. Questions, though, about the process before we move on? Okay. Well, we are going to jump back into our study of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. You can turn there in your Bibles if you'd like. I will display the text on the screen as we read it, but again, having, having that passage in front of you would be even more beneficial. So open your Bibles to Revelation 3. 14 to 22. 
Before we read, let's pray and ask God's Spirit to illuminate this for us. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you for these people and their desire to understand your word. I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would enable us to do that. Help me, Lord, to be able to speak clearly and keep me away from error in, in what I say. And I pray, Lord, that you would open their hearts to understand and that they would, even though we're not going to talk about application today, that they would already begin to see how this passage applies to them. Lord, keep us far away from sin, and instead, Lord, lead us into your joy and your holiness. pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. So here's the passage again. Let me read it, and then I'll do a, a summary of some of the things that we discovered based on our work in the process of interpretation last time. So here's Revelation 3, 14 to 22 in the New American Standard Version. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, this is our passage. Like I said, I would like to briefly summarize the findings that we've come to based on our following the first two steps in our process of interpretation. We observe the content of this passage, and we also observe the context, especially what came before now, I can't re-mention everything we observed last week. Hopefully you remember. But I would like to summarize some of the things that we noticed. And I, I've posted the summary here in a paragraph. <clears throat> Jesus is the one speaking here. And he's giving a message to Laodicea in our passage, and it is a message of serious rebuke. Jesus indicts the church for being lukewarm, especially in relation to its deeds. Like Ephesus and Sardis, who had pervasive problems at the heart level, Affecting their deeds, the problem in Laodicea is serious enough that Jesus threatens total rejection of the church, spitting them out. However, Laodicea is not even aware of its problem, believing itself to be rich and having no needs. Jesus points out that they are actually the opposite in the extreme. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Five terms there. Despite the strong admonition, Jesus does hold out hope to the church if they will repent and return to him, offering intimate fellowship and even exaltation as rewards. 
But questions still remain, even though we've discovered a lot about Laodicea. And hopefully you're putting together your interpretation of this passage based on our observations. Think there are questions that we'd still like to answer. What does it mean to be lukewarm? What does it mean to be hot? What does it mean to be cold? Why does Jesus call himself the beginning of creation? Why was the church lukewarm in the first place? And why were they calling themselves rich? And why didn't they see their true condition? Let's see if we can help answer these questions by proceeding to the third step in our process of interpretation. What is that step again? Comparison, very good, which means we want to look at other scriptures. We want to look at other relevant scriptures in the Bible. And we can do that for many of the terms that actually appear in the verses um, that we've looked at. What do you think are some terms or ideas that we want to look at in the rest of the Bible to get a better understanding of, uh, about here? I'll go back to the verse so you can see. What's something we'd probably want to look at in the rest of the Bible? Very good, Khalif. Let's look to see if there's any more information about Laodicea. So one of the easy ways we can do that, Bible Gateway, just type in Laodicea. See what verses come up. <clears throat> what else? Okay, we can look for other titles of Christ, especially the idea of beginning or the beginning of creation. Good. What else? What other terms or ideas should we look at in the rest of the Bible? Yeah, Danielle. Right, so if there's something that, that seems to come from this passage, we want to check it with other parts of Scripture. Can, can a Christian be rejected by Jesus, or could he lose his salvation? That might be another way of asking that question. That's good. What else? Eric? Yeah, it's a lukewarm mention, or the idea of hot and cold mentioned in other parts of the Bible. And there are many other things we can look up. One of the things particularly we should look up is rich. Look at the idea of being rich or riches. Or we can also look up um, nakedness or the use of the term amen or um, Jesus' role in creation. Is he a created being? Because it kind of sounds like it could be based on this passage. And there are other things we can look up. But for the sake of time, I only want to demonstrate us doing this with a couple of terms. Terms I think that would be helpful for us to see the process of interpretation. And again, we'll be using, we'd be using a concordance or Bible gateway to help find these things. I just want to look at four terms with you using, or in the comparison step. Laodicea, the word beginning, hot and cold, and then riches, or the idea of being rich. So let's start with Laodicea. Does Laodicea appear in any other parts of the Bible? Yes or no? It does. Do you know where, Steve? Very close. Um, not actually the letter to Ephesus, but the letter to the Colossians. That's actually where we get this. It's the only other part that we see Laodicea in the Bible. And at, what I'm going to do for these, um, this comparison step is I'm going to display the verses. I'll, I'll mention the verses, but I'm not going to read the whole thing because we're actually going to be looking at a fair amount of verses. So 
I want you to read it, if you're close enough, or you can turn to the passage if you're not close enough, and tell me what do you notice about Laodicea based on these other passages. So there are two spots where Laodicea appears, both in Colossians. Colossians 2, verses 1 to 3, and then Colossians 4, verses 12 to 17. So I put the verses up there. Scan those, or scan the verses that are in your Bible, and tell me what do we learn about Laodicea? Yeah, Danielle. Yeah, Paul's had contact with them, though what has Paul not done with Laodicea? Very good. Notice in Colossians 2, 1 to 3, he says, those that are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. The idea is that the people in Laodicea are among that group who have not seen him before. But he has corresponded with them before. Good. What else do we notice about Laodicea? Eric. Yeah, that's kind of cool, right? Even though he hasn't met these guys, hasn't seen them, he really cares about them. And he's, he's burdened for them. Probably um, praying for them a lot. What else? What guy was certainly connected with Laodicea besides Paul? Yeah, or uh, Epaphras or Epaphras. He seems to be fundamental in the church of Laodicea and in Colossae. What were you going to say, Gabriella? Oh, that's really cool, actually. I didn't notice that before. But yeah, even that theme of riches and the contrast uh, or uh, a description of the, the wealth that is in Jesus, even though this was directed to the Colossians, Laodicea is mentioned as well. So there may be some similarities between these two churches, Colossae and Laodicea. I think I saw another hand. Was there somebody else who had an observation? Yeah, Khalif. Very good. Why would these churches be mentioned together? Not only is there at least some similarity between the churches, but they're probably close by if Epaphras has been to both. And we're going to find later on that's absolutely true. Laodicea and Colossae were very close together, only I think six miles apart or something like that. So pretty close, pretty close. We don't get too much information about Laodicea here, but we can see that Paul never visited it. It was connected with and close to Colossae. Epaphras labored a lot for Laodicea, and Paul apparently sent a letter, which you see in the, in the second set of verses here. In verse uh, 15, it says in Colossians 4, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So Paul did send a letter, but we don't have that letter. Or at least, it's not clear what letter that was. 
<clears throat> so good. But that's all we get about Laodicea. Let's see if we can find some other things looking at um, some of the other ideas that we mentioned earlier. Let's talk about the word beginning. Well, actually, uh, go back. Beginning, or the idea of Jesus being the beginning of creation. Well, we'd want to deal with that fundamental question. Is Jesus created being? Revelation 3 says the beginning of creation. Is Jesus a created being, or is there, are there any verses that can help us answer that question? Um, he certainly was there in Genesis. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And um, it says, let us make man in our image. And there's even a New Testament verse that talks about Jesus' presence at the time of creation. Can anybody think of where that would be? Yeah, or Sherry Ann. Yeah, the section in John 1 is really helpful for dealing with that question. And I've also attached another verse when it comes to beginning. So I'm displaying this verse for you. John 1, verses 1 to 3. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then this great verse. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. So that's pretty clear that Jesus wasn't created. In fact, he was the one who allowed everything to be created. There's another verse that uses the idea of beginning and I think can shed some light on the way it's being used in Revelation. In Proverbs 8.22, wisdom says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. Now how do we understand the word beginning in Proverbs? Does that mean that God had a starting point? Eric? Right, because we know that God has always been. That's one thing that is stressed in the scriptures. And for wisdom to be there at God's beginning or at the beginning of a certain thing, that doesn't mean that God was created, but that just means that as far back as you can go, wisdom was there with him. Same, we can apply that understanding to our understanding, or we can apply that understanding to the way that we interpret beginning in Revelation. But the word beginning also appears in some other interesting contexts. And I want to display those for you and tell me what you notice. Let's go back further in the Old Testament. Two verses here Genesis 49.3 and Deuteronomy 21.17. Again, I won't read those to you, but look at those verses and tell me what you notice about the word beginning. Anything stand out to you? Yeah, Danielle. And what does the firstborn get for being the beginning? Right, yeah. There's this honor and uh, strength that is applied to the firstborn. He's seen as a symbol of that. And practically, he got a greater inheritance. And that idea of being a firstborn is even, or is even described using the word beginning. 
Reuben was um, Jacob's firstborn. And in Deuteronomy, there's a, a law about firstborns that, again, acknowledges the idea that the beginning is special. The firstborn is special. He's the beginning of strength. He's the beginning of dignity. So we see this also coloring our understanding of the use of beginning. Two more verses I want to show you that use this term. In the New Testament, Colossians and Revelation. Colossians 1.18 and Revelation 22.13. Read those and tell me what you notice about the use of the word beginning. What can we say about beginning based on these verses? Yeah, Michelle. Indeed. And tying that with some of our understanding of how it was used in the Old Testament and how it's used here, what can we say about Jesus' role as the beginning? Very good, Bill. It talks about, um, it doesn't use the word preeminence, but if you look at Colossians 1.18, it's all about making him supreme, right? And it does that in a number of ways. He's the head of the church, the body. He's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he'll have first place. He's going to be above everything. He's going to dominate everything. And then what about Revelation 22 to 13? See beginning use in another place. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, yeah. So while we're seeing the use of beginning to describe his preeminence, we also see that beginning combined with other time terms to talk about how he's part of everything and always has been and always will be. He is the start and the finish and uses a number of other terms to describe that besides beginning. So, let's bring this back to Revelation 3. Certainly, the, the use of the term beginning of creation is not about Jesus being a created being, but what does it emphasize about Jesus? He's the beginning of creation. Right, he's preeminent. And not just at the beginning, at the, uh, when everything started, but but when? Yeah, through all time. He is preeminent. He is supreme. He started creation, and he dominates all of creation. I don't mean in a sense that um, he's telling everybody what to do, though he does have control over in that sense, but he is above all of it, and he always has been since the beginning. He's the beginning of creation. He's the ruler. He's the creator, and he has, since the beginning, dominated history as the preeminent one. He brings that back into the, mind, the minds of his listeners in Revelation 3. Why would Jesus want to emphasize his status as the first of all creation? First in rank and first in time. 
What do you think? Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it. <clears throat> Let's move over to hot and cold and lukewarm. Well, if you look up the term lukewarm, you don't find it anywhere else. Or at least I didn't find it anywhere else. <clears throat> but you do find hot and cold mentioned a few times. And there might be one passage in particular when you say, ooh, cold. Cold is bad, based on what verse? New Testament verse. Excellent. Yeah, Bill's right on the money here. That verse comes from Matthew, and I'll, I'll display that verse to you. Matthew 24, 9 to 14. This is talking about the end times, the tribulation. I'll just start in verse 12. It says, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Now, clearly, this is a negative use of the, word, uh, of the term cold. Becoming cold in your love is tantamount to not doing what, according to verse 13? Not enduring. If your love grows cold, it means that you did not endure. Does this mean, however, that you become openly rebellious against God? Yeah, actually, that's a really great point. It's not necessarily that they become openly rebellious, that they're shaking their fists at God, that they're blaspheming him every chance they get. It might just be that they become indifferent. That actually sounds a lot like our understanding of lukewarm, right? So cold is definitely negative here, but let's look at how cold is used in other spots and how hot is used in other spots. Let me show you two passages from the Old Testament using the term hot. Tell me what you notice about the term. Deuteronomy 9.19 and Psalm 39. Uh, I put a couple of verses there, but verse 3 is the one that uses the term. What is hot associated with? What can we observe about hot? How it's used in these verses. It can have something to do with passion, though I think we can get a little bit closer to it. It has a lot to do with anger, right? Especially in these verses. The hot displeasure of the Lord. He was wrathful against you. Or in Psalm 39.3, the psalmist is thinking about um, the wicked, and he says, I'm not going to say anything. But then he just feels this hotness within him. He says, my heart was hot within me while I was musing the fire burned. He was getting upset. He was getting impassioned, but in, an, in a way that he was angry. And it's not, not for any mistake that one of the most common uses of the word hot is connected with the term tempered. Proverbs talks about staying away from the hot-tempered man. Hot seems to be connected with anger. Does that mean that it's connected with anger in Revelation? Let's look at how the word cold is used. Two verses, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Proverbs 25, 13, and then Matthew 10, 42. What is cold associated with in these verses? I heard somebody, what? Refreshment, right? Like, I'm not exactly sure why this is refreshing, but clearly it is, and it's Proverbs 25, 13. 
like snow and harvest. That was like, yay, we got snow. That refreshed the soul. That's connected with the idea of refreshing the soul of one's master. Or getting a cup of cold water to drink. It refreshes. So we have a little bit of a problem. Cold is negative in some places and positive in some other places. And the use of the term hot seems to be negative in, in some of the Old Testament uses, but is it really negative in, the, uh, in Revelation? Well, hopefully you're seeing a very important truth about certain phrases or analogies in the Bible. That is, that they depend on the context. Hot and cold don't have an intrinsic meaning to them. It depends on how people are using them. Think about this in the case of another analogy or metaphor, leaven. Leaven is usually associated with what? Sin, except Jesus uses it in a different way in the Gospels. He uses leaven to describe what? The kingdom, he says. The kingdom of God is like leaven that spreads all throughout a piece of dough. Now, if we're thinking leaven equals sin, then we're going to have a problem interpreting that passage. So, moral of the story, based on the rest of Scripture, we ought not to think that hot is good and cold is bad, or that cold is good and hot is bad. We have to think about how is it used in that particular passage. We'll come back to that a little bit later on and how it's used in Revelation. Probably the most important thing to look at when um, comparing, when going to the rest of Scripture, is the idea of riches. I'm going to show you two verses that use the term, well, one uses the term rich and one has someone who's rich. Job 1, 1 to 3, and then Proverbs 10, 22. What do you notice about riches based on these verses? <laughs> Can you expand that, Greg? Right. So it's possible to be righteous and rich, right? So um, based on these verses, we can't say that riches are evil. We can't say they're necessarily bad. In fact, they are part of God's blessing. It says it's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. So that's important to understand. We want to understand the whole Bible's context about riches. However, some other verses that talk about being rich. Joshua, well, riches and wealth. Joshua 7, 20 to 21, and then 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 10. We saw in the last verses, riches aren't evil. They actually can be part of God's blessing. But what do you notice about riches here? Eric. Very good. So we are noticing that while riches themselves are not evil, loving riches or desiring to, be get, to get rich, loving riches in an idolatrous way, will lead you into sin and even ruin. This passage over here is about Achan when he coveted some of the riches from um, after one of the battles that, that Joshua and Israel went through. And they were not allowed to take anything, but he really wanted it. He was greedy for it. And what ended up happening to him is that he was killed. 
along with his family. And in 1 Timothy 6, 9 to 10, we get that very famous verse about the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And those who have longed for it, they pierce themselves through. They sin and they, they cause grief for themselves. So, seeing some important things about riches, let's look at some more. We've got four verses on this slide. Proverbs 8, 18, 10 to 11. Proverbs 28, 11. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. And 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 18. What do we notice about riches and being rich based on these verses? Khalif. Very good, especially in Proverbs 18, 10 to 11. People can think of riches as their true security rather than God. What else? What else can riches do? Yes, riches can make you proud, right? We see that in this Proverbs 28, 11. Rich man is wise in his own eyes. And we don't have it on here. But Nebuchadnezzar, right? He has this great kingdom and he says, look what my hand has made. And God punished him for that. In Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24, God says, don't boast in wisdom or might or riches. But instead, boast that you know me and that I know you. And 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 18 says something similar. So riches aren't evil. They are God's blessing or they can be part of God's blessing. Loving riches can lead you astray into sin and ruin. And that riches can make one proud. And trust in riches as security. Last set of verses on riches. Proverbs 30, 7 to 9, Luke 8, 14, and then Luke 11, 16 to 21. What do you notice about riches or being rich? somewhat related to what we just looked at. Eric. Yeah. Despite what riches truly are, and that is temporal and transient, they can take over your life. So much so that Proverbs, in the wisdom book, one of the guys says, I prayed to God not to make me rich. Because if, if I became rich, I might be full and deny God and say, who is the Lord? I begin to think, I don't need God anymore. Not that he would say that out loud, but you wouldn't feel the need to pursue God. Or I like what you mentioned, Eric, about the worries that come with riches, but not just worries. One of the things that the soil and the thorns, Jesus explains that that also indicates the pleasures taking over you. That you have all these nice things, and so you just pursue those. I'd rather have fun. I'd rather be pleased than worry about God. And we see that happening exactly in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 11. Person, the thought of God or death does not even enter his mind because he's so caught up in his possessions. 
But God makes a contrast with him and he says, you are not rich toward me. What good do all these other things do for you? This is very important for how we understand the situation in Laodicea. They say they are rich and have need of nothing. This is going to really inform our understanding of why they're lukewarm. We'll actually give voice to that in just a second, but before we do that, let's do the culture step. We've seen the context of the rest of the Bible about some of these terms, but what about rediscovering the background, using some of the resources that aren't in the Bible? Well, again, we're looking to use Bible dictionaries, Bible handbooks, and atlases and things like that. <clears throat> and for this, I found that the dictionary was particularly helpful. There's some historical realities that if we didn't know about it, we would really miss a lot of what's going on in this message to the Laodicean church. This isn't to say that you can't get something from other resources. By looking at the atlas, I've actually posted a map for you here. I did notice something about Laodicea in terms of why it appears last. Why is the letter to Laodicea last? Well, look at the map. What do you think? It's not that it was the worst church, necessarily. Why? Yeah, geographically, it just makes sense. You go up towards, this is, notice, that's the exact order in Revelation, right? Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergam, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. And the atlas I had actually showed that there are routes that went from each one of these cities so that you could travel to them in that order, which makes sense if he had uh, decided this letter to go to all the different churches. So we can get that from a thing like an atlas. I've given you a screenshot of the, how you can get to the Holman Bible Dictionary. I actually consulted two dictionaries in my research for this, the Erdman's Bible Dictionary, which my dad gave to me, and then the Holman Bible Dictionary, which you, see on, which you can see online. And uh, I'm going to give you the, re the, the listing from the Holman Dictionary because I feel like it's, a, it's the most complete, though both dictionaries said the same thing. As we rediscover the historical situation, tell me what you notice. Let me read to you. Laodicea, this comes from the Holman Bible Dictionary. A city in southwest Asia Minor on an ancient highway running from Ephesus to Syria, 10 miles west of Colossae and 6 miles south of Hierapolis. Christian communities existed in all three cities, that is Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea, though the one in Colossae is the best well known. Paul wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, which has not survived, though some scholars have attempted to identify this missing letter with either the book of Ephesians or Philemon. Laodicea was well known in the ancient world for its wealth. The extent of its wealth is illustrated by the fact that Laodicea was rebuilt without the financial help of Rome after the disastrous earthquake of AD 60. Laodicea earned its wealth in the textile industry, in the production of black wool, and in the banking industry. Laodicea was also known for its medical school, which concocted a spice nard for the treatment of ears and an eye salve. The major weakness of Laodicea was its lack of a water supply. This need was met by bringing water six miles north from Denizli through a system of stone pipes, another sign of Laodicea's wealth. Jesus said Laodicea is neither cold, like what was known in the cold, pure waters of Colossae, nor hot, like the therapeutic hot springs of Hierapolis. All right, some major light bulbs should be going off in your head. What do you notice, based on the historical background, about Laodicea and Jesus' letter to that church? Say that again. 
Right, they had a financial history of being independent. So it makes sense that they would say, I have need of nothing, because they were so wealthy. What else do you notice? Exactly, right? All the, all the condemnations that he, that, or all the language that he uses to describe the church's problems are all drawn from their history, all drawn from their daily life. And notice their wealth. He talks about their being rich. They were very wealthy. And he talks about them actually being naked. What does that connect with? Right, the textile industry and the black wool. But Jesus says, what you really need is not black wool, but white. Right? You need white garments. And you're actually blind. Even though you've got this great medical school, even though you're famous for your eye salve, you're actually blind. So this should allow us to put together our interpretation of the passage. What was really going on with Laodicea? Well, let's look at the passage again. We'll go through uh, the sections piece by piece, and we'll, we'll ask some questions and answer those questions. Back to Revelation 3, 14 to 22. <clears throat> oh, we didn't get to say something about the water. Why does Jesus call them lukewarm? They meant for it to be cold and refreshing, but even though Colossae had cold, refreshing water, and Heropolis had hot um, water that, that could help treat certain things, Jesus says, you're not either of those. You're not like your neighbors. You have lukewarm water. All right. So we see that that, too, was part of their daily life, their daily experience. So let's go back to the beginning of this. The angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Why does Jesus call himself the amen and the faithful and true witness? I've actually mentioned something about this before. That's right. He's going to shock them with the truth. And he's emphasizing, my record is really true, just like he did with Sardis. And he says, I'm the one that has the seven spirits of God, which, again, I can't go through the whole where that comes from, but it's best understood as a description of his omniscience. He says, you have a name that you're alive, but you're actually dead. And to the lukewarm church, he says, you have deeds, but you're actually lukewarm. So he's emphasizing the truth of his record on them. Why does he call himself the beginning of creation? Remember, it's the idea of him being first. Why would he say that to this church? Right. They were focused on not the beginning of creation, but what? Yeah, they were living in the creation, right? They were trusting in their creation. Or they were being pleased with their creation rather than the one who's supreme over all of it. I think there's a reason why he calls himself the beginning of creation. Let's move on. I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and I've become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Notice again, this lukewarmness is connected to their deeds. It comes right after. I know your deeds. That, it's qualification, it's an explanation, that you're neither cold nor hot. So what does it mean to be lukewarm, especially when it comes to deeds? Okay, apathetic. 
Yeah, tri um, Eric. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going on. One term that we might want to use as a synonym for lukewarm is half-hearted. They're not really fully into it. <clears throat> so if we're connecting that with deeds, if you're half-hearted in your deeds, you're going to do exactly what Eric said. You're not really going to want to do the deeds. And when you do do them, you're not going to really have a great attitude about it. You're going to begrudge. Your motivation is going to be tainted. Now, Jesus says he's going to spit them out, metaphorically, if they, uh, because of their lukewarmness. Why would somebody spit out a lukewarm liquid, especially water? Tastes bad. And from something else uh, I read about this, the piping system that they had, this underground uh, aqueduct into Laodicea, got a lot of minerals in it, a lot of calcium. So it wasn't just that it was not the best temperature, but it tasted really hard. It tasted really minerally. And so Jesus says, you are just like your water. I want to spit you out. Now, what about hot water? Would we automatically want to spit out hot water? Especially if there were um, something like tea or sugar mixed in? <laughs> Why wouldn't we want to spit that out? It's comforting, right? Soothing. I don't know about you, but I love to drink tea when I'm feeling sick or when I'm really cold. It warms, it soothes. That's not something that you usually want to spit out. And cold water. We don't normally want to spit out cold water or cold liquids, and why not? It refreshes you. When do you really want cold water? When you're hot, usually after you've done what? Yeah, sports, or you've done a race, or you just help somebody move. You're exhausted. You want to be refreshed with some water, some cold water. Um, so let's tie this analogy together. What's the difference between hot and cold deeds and lukewarm deeds? What's the result that comes from hot and cold that you don't get with lukewarm? Danielle? Yeah, but lukewarm deeds? Exactly, exactly, right? <clears throat> Let's, um, we are running a little bit out of time, so we might not be able to get through the whole passage. We'll just pick it up next week. But let me finish what I'm saying here. <clears throat> Have you ever felt this? Somebody who doesn't really seem to do very many deeds of service or good deeds, and when he does, you get the feeling that it's a terrible inconvenience for him. And he's really doing it begrudgingly. How encouraged are you by that kind of good deed? Not very encouraged. In fact, probably discouraged. You're like, oh, I don't want to see that. We would rather the person didn't do it at all. It's like you're craving uh, a refreshing drink either a tall, cold glass of water or a soothing cup of hot tea, and someone says, I'll get a drink for you. But when he comes back, all he gives you is this lukewarm cup of minerally water. When you get that cup and you drink it, 
You're not feeling thankful. You almost rather that the person didn't get that cup at all. You say, ooh, now I feel obligated to drink this. <clears throat> Drinking it would rather disgust you, or would disgust you rather than refresh or soothe you. So I think we're just understanding what is what was communicated to the original audience when he said hot, cold, and lukewarm. Jesus would accept hot or cold. People need soothing at times. They need encouragement. They need refreshment. But this half-hearted pursuit of good deeds might as well not even be there. It's not encouraging anybody. It's not refreshing to Jesus. It's actually sickening. But why aren't people zealous about good deeds? Why isn't this church zealous about good deeds? Exactly. What are they pursuing instead of good deeds? Hmm? Say that again. Wealth. Uh, be more specific. Okay, comfort. I heard something else over here. Okay, that self-sufficiency, making sure that they're secure financially. I think comfort and pleasures, right? Essentially, um, they don't love God the most, what do they love the most? Themselves by pursuing what? Yeah, pleasures, the things of this world. They're materialists. They think that they can be satisfied in things. And they've got a lot of them, so they have plenty to pursue. They're too busy making their wealth and enjoying their wealth. They don't have time. They don't have time for Jesus. I'll get to him later. I'll study later. I'll pray later. I'll do these deeds of service later. Now, they don't need it anyways. I mean, we're all pretty well off. They didn't think there was any spiritual need. And uh, my last thought. This probably even connects with an idea that the Jews had in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They probably even felt that they had no need spiritually because if you're rich, then what must... God, think about you. Say that again. He's blessing you, which means he must what? You. He must love you. He must approve of you. That's why the disciples were so shocked when Jesus said the rich, that it's impossible for them to get into heaven. What? Of all people, the rich, because God likes them. If you're poor, if you've got a hardship, then God must hate you. That's why Job's friends said, Job, you've got to repent. This obviously happened to you because you're in sin. God doesn't approve of you. And doesn't this happen when we're really well off, when, when a group is, is really prosperous? Assume even that this must mean that God is okay with me. I don't have to worry about God, because look, he's blessing me. I can thank him for, his, for these blessings. This is at the heart of what's wrong with this church. We will talk about the, the rest of the passage next week, and we'll also talk about um, the consultation step. What about other interpreters? What have they said about this passage, and should we adjust our interpretation based on what we're reading? And of course, you hopefully are already beginning to think about the application. This was not simply meant for the Laodicean church. The last phrase is, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All of them. Whoever can listen, listen to what I've said to each one of these churches. And that includes us. All right, let's pray and close. <clears throat> Holy Father, we thank you for this message. And Lord, it is one that we need to 
to take seriously. Lord, we do not want to become lukewarm. We do not want to pursue good deeds half-heartedly because we are instead too concerned about just pleasing ourselves in this world, too concerned with just keeping ourselves or making ourselves secure in this world. Lord, I pray that we would see what is true riches and that that would be informed by how we act and how we serve one another. Lord, bless the rest of the service and bless the pastor in his preaching. Pray this in your name. Amen.